All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me is always Gabe Gums. Um, we have a, a special guest today. His name is Jason Kronk. He is an author, privacy, and trust consultant. Jason, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's just dive right into it. Where, where did you go to college? Where did you get your JD? So I, I went to uh, Florida State University, uh, and I'm actually sitting here recording from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, I had the unfortunate or fortunate pleasure of when I was in college, I, I went to uh, law school late in life and uh, had purchased a house uh, while I was here. And unfortunately, it was at the uh, top of the real estate market and bottomed out while I was in law school. So I was unable to sell it. Uh, became a absentee landlord uh, and rented out for a number of years. It happened to be vacant uh, at the moment. And so I needed a place to hole up uh, during our, our lovely uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, so I am holed up in my uh, vacant rental property here in Tallahassee, Florida, uh, not very far from Florida State University. Very nice. Um, so and that's when when did you get your uh, Juris Doctor? What What year was that? Yeah, so it was in 2009. I started in 2006, uh, graduated in 2009. Uh, it was also not only was the uh, real estate market horrible, but it was a horrible time for uh, attorneys as well. Uh, my intent of uh, part of my intent of going to law school was to get into private law. Uh, I had been working in information security prior to that uh, in a uh, technical capacity, uh, working at Verizon at the time uh, when I decided to go to law school and came out. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, job market for lawyers was not too good. I had a, a fellow classmate who graduated with me, uh, ended up working as a Papa John's delivery driver for nine months as a licensed attorney. Uh, I luckily, uh, I mean, it took a while, but I luckily had my uh, old employer that I could call back uh, at Verizon, and they brought me back on, uh, back into the same role I had been in uh, as a contractor, uh, at Verizon and Information Security Department. And it took a couple of years, uh, but eventually uh, was able to get out of that and focus uh, where I had wanted to be uh, full-time on privacy. Now, I did not go back into privacy law. I, I am a licensed attorney in Florida, and I do have uh, a few clients here and there, but I try to focus uh, more on the technical side. Uh, there are plenty of privacy attorneys uh, but I, I really like the technical angle and I have the, the technical chops uh, to be able to kind of bridge that gap, um, which a lot of lawyers don't have. And of course, the, the technical folks don't necessarily uh, know the uh, know the legal landscape uh, as well as, as a lawyer might. I think I'm going to. I'm going to uh, coin a new term and that's going to be a privacy unicorn, my friend. And I, I think you've earned that. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's funny you should say that uh, because that's what everybody told me. I had uh, a good 15-year career in IT and a technical background. My undergraduate degree was in mathematics uh, with a minor in information systems management. I had been a, a programmer uh, in a previous life. 
uh, and and then went and got my law degree, and everybody said, oh, that's the perfect combination. Uh, and then looking for a job, at least at that time, I think it's it's a little bit different these days, uh, but back in 2009, 2010, uh, when I was looking for that job, everybody wanted lawyers, and, and, and unfortunately, they wanted lawyers with experience. And it, it was a little different because for the most part, Many of the lawyers I spoke to who were in privacy law didn't choose that as a career. They were at a firm or they were in-house counsel. A privacy issue came up. They had to write a privacy notice for a website. Then another issue came up and another issue came up. And eventually they were a privacy counsel because that's what, you know, they had enough work to justify that. Very few attorneys I spoke to did it purposefully and you know wanted to go into that area of law now there are there are some exceptions uh, but that made it very difficult because when i came out of out of law school uh, again the job market was just kind of uh, in shambles uh, so there were jobs for privacy lawyers uh, but they wanted people with three four or five years of experience as a privacy lawyer i mean it's, it's the same uh, you know chicken and egg you need experience before you can get experience yeah. kind of thing Unfortunately, as a, as a entry level attorney, kind of a, a, a generalist, you can kind of get those privacy uh, questions and then develop a practice around privacy. But if you want to go into that specifically, it makes it much, uh, much harder to, to do that. Um, so, yeah, so it was very difficult. Uh, I eventually landed a role. Like I said, I went back to Verizon for a while, eventually landed a role at uh, NCR, National Cash Register, uh, largest manufacturer of ATMs and point of sale systems, uh, and, and got that role. It was in the information security department, uh, but they a, a lot of that was reading contracts, either a contract with our vendors uh, or contracts with our customers. Uh, because the lawyers didn't know the technical terminology that was being uh, inserted into the contract, uh, and the uh, technical folks uh, couldn't really read the the contract language. So it was kind of a it was a good role to be in, and I, I did a lot of vendor negotiations and customer negotiations. Um, it, it was a little bit monotonous because you would go through the same issue with dozens of vendors and the same issues with dozens of customers. Uh, but it was new to them because uh, they hadn't negotiated with you before. Uh, right. But uh, but it was definitely a, a a good niche to be in for a while. So you've definitely activated my my peak interest card. <laughs> a mathematician and a privacy lawyer. So my immediate question for you, for our audience is, could you, in, in, in best layman's terms you can, describe what differential privacy is, how that applies in to technology, and, and where it might fit in in today's, in, in today's world? Sure, so, so one of the techniques that you can use uh, in privacy uh, to, to, that can be uh, protective is adding uh, noise, kind of adding random information to, uh, uh, to something. Uh, you know, let's say, you know, somebody wants to know your date of birth. Well, we could add some random amount, uh, you know, plus or minus a month, plus or minus six months. It would give them a general idea of how old you are, but it wouldn't give them your specific date of birth uh, in order to, uh, you know, that they could use, use it for identity theft or something along those lines. So, so noise 
can can be privacy pre, uh, preserving in in some respect. Differential privacy is about adding noise in a very uh, deterministic way, such that it doesn't affect the overall statistics uh, of the data set. Uh, so there's still going to be um, you know you're still going to be able to extract statistically like. Uh, oh, how many, you know, what percentage of uh, uh, men are in this data set or what percentage of, uh, you know, people in retirement age in this data set. You can still extract that without being able to learn any specific information about one individual. And you can't even learn whether an individual is included in the data set or not included in a data set. Now, one of the aspects that this important in, in differential privacy uh, is you have what's called a, a, a budget. Um, because you can imagine if you had a, a, a data set and you were asking questions about the data set, if you ask enough intersecting questions, uh, even though there's noise added to the response, you, you, you could ask, okay, what percentage of the data set is men? Okay, well, that's you know, 53%. Okay, well, which percentage of the data set is people of retirement age? Oh, well, that's 12%. Well, you start asking enough, and if you know some outside information, you could pinpoint whether a specific individual was in or out of that data set. You know, they're a man of retirement age living in Florida, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so by having a privacy budget that you use up with each of these questions, at some point you're no longer allowed to ask the data set any question because that would reveal – you would end up revealing uh, uh, information about a specific person. So that's kind of differential privacy uh, in, in a nutshell in a non-mathematical non, uh, uh, description, I guess. <laughs> you provide that description. So what you touched on is the very real world scenario where, where, where organizations who have to share data sets, whether they're doing so for marketing reasons or other research reasons, maybe say in a, in, in, in a health crisis, sharing data sets about individuals who may have contracted a virus. I don't know, like what's happening right now or a retailer sharing data um, so that they can better improve their services to other to other customers. So what you're describing is, is where that comes into play. And so if you could also follow up on that and maybe talk just a little bit about what a re-identification attack might mean in that context. So uh, it, uh, the idea is that you may have a data set and you want to do something analysis. So one of the, the kind of uh, classical examples was uh, Netflix uh, early on released uh, its data set uh, for analysis uh, of uh, what movies people were watching. Uh, and uh, they did so because they wanted somebody to develop better algorithms for recommending uh, movies to people. And uh, some some uh, enterprising people who, who – now the, the data set had been de-identified. You know, they had removed specific identifier. They did have, you know, some type of, of, uh, of code to identify that, okay, this is the same person who watched, um, you know, X-Men uh, as who watched uh, the Avengers. Uh, but uh, beyond that, it was, it was just some, you know, random number. However, uh, they – 
had dates and times, you know, and obviously ordering in which people uh, had watched these. And somebody was able to go and look at commentary on uh, the uh, IMDb database, which is the Internet Movie uh, Database, uh, people who had commented on movies and kind of cross-correlated that to show that, oh, look, this guy named Gabe who is posting commentaries about X-Men and Avengers on these dates also watched X. X-Men's and Avengers on, you know, there was somebody who watched X-Men's and Avengers like two hours before that, before the comments appeared. And look, they also watched the My Little Pony movie, uh, you know, the next day. Uh, so uh, they were able to re-identify, uh, I, I don't know what percentage of people, uh, but they were able to re-identify. Uh, another good example, you mentioned the health context. Uh, there's a classic example from the uh, uh, from the 1990s, the state of Massachusetts uh, released uh, the health records of state employees. They had de-identified the people, uh, but they left some information. They left date of birth because they wanted to know if things were happening to an older or younger population, you know, certain diseases. Uh, they left postal codes because they wanted to know uh, if the things were happening in eastern Massachusetts or western Massachusetts or uh, the heart of Boston. Uh, and they left gender. It's, it's something affecting men or women uh, in a different uh, manner. Well, a researcher at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, took that information uh, and was able to re-identify the governor of Massachusetts, uh, William Weld, and sent him a copy of his medical records because he was the only person uh, in the state employee records or state employee who was in a specific zip code, had a specific gender, male, uh, and had a specific uh, birth date. Uh, and they were able to get that from the voter rolls, which were public records. Um, so, and, and, and in fact, uh, it turns out that about uh, 90, 85, 90% of the, uh, of the uh, uh, individuals in that state employee database were, uh, were individually identifiable uh, using this information, that, uh, that that combination of date of birth, zip code, and gender were uniquely identifiable. And this is something that differential privacy, you know, could have helped. They could have allowed uh, uh, queries to a database of this of this information uh, without ac uh, access to the actual data. Now, I do want to say, uh, while we're on the subject of differential privacy, it's interesting, and, and I, I, I will start out by saying I don't know a whole lot about this particular application, uh, but it, but it, I think it's an interesting thing. I know a number of uh, some of the large tech companies are using differential privacy to do kind of polling of, of live information. So it's not a static database that they have of data. Uh, but in other words, they're polling like apps or or people. And so because the database, the underlying data is actually constantly changing, um, they don't use up their, their quote-unquote privacy budget so quickly uh, because it's really like polling almost a different database every time you ask it a question. Uh, so that's an interesting application. You know, you can use it for things uh, like doing telemetry on apps. Uh, uh, again, I, I, I'm a little bit getting out of my uh, area of expertise. I'm just aware of this. Uh, but if you want to know if certain, you know, parts of your application on, on a mobile phone are crashing or people are struggling to find the button to do something, 
thing. Um, this may be a way of, of uh, you know, polling that user data uh, without uh, revealing uh, individual uh, information. Oh, I really appreciate that. That was that was that was perfect. That that that's the kind of information that I believe our 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 audience really tunes in for. So thank you. I also want to add a little bit of an editor's note. Um, any actual uh, references to, to to my watching Little Pony were mere, merely accidental. <laughs> Sat in the remote. I was yeah, sorry. I forgot to put that caveat in that that it data was, was yeah, not uh, not remote. found in that data set. Not I at was all. Sat on that for real. If you were just researching that, <laughs> I sat on it about twenty times. I don't know how that happened. So many times Got by him. accident. <laughs> well, hey, you got a niece, don't you? You have a little niece or nephew? I, I I certainly have some some youngins around that may have clicked that button, there but it go. wasn't me. There you go. It wasn't Gabe, guys. It wasn't Gabe. Um, so, Jason, <clears throat> why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about IAPP and what that means if they're not really familiar with it? Sure. So the IPP is a association, uh, the International Association of Privacy Professionals. They recently celebrated their 20-year anniversary. Uh, so they started somewhere in the late uh, 90s. I think they started with something like 100 or, or 200 members. Uh, some of the early people uh, engaged in the privacy profession. Uh, Trevor Hughes, who is currently the president, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he was uh, the founder or one of the initial founders of the IEPP. Uh, I've been involved since about, let's see, it was uh, 2009 when I graduated from law school. I specifically remember I wanted to become a member and I unfortunately uh, made the mistake of not taking advantage of their student membership, waited until I graduated to apply for membership. Uh, I mean, not that there's an application necessarily, but uh, yeah. and, and then again, because I had graduated from law school, I was no longer eligible for the student discount <laughs> rate. Um but uh, at the time, they were a little bit more flexible. It was still a fairly uh, young organization. I, I can't tell you how many members they had, but uh, it was uh, much smaller. Uh, and so they they had a discounted professional rate uh, that was uh, not much more than the, the student rate uh, for uh, unemployed, out-of-work-looking uh, professionals, which uh, graduating from law school I, I was at the time. So at least for the first year, I took advantage uh, of that uh, because I had right. been emailing them back and forth, like, please let me do the student rate. If I had done it like uh, three weeks earlier, I could I could have gotten it. And um, so anyway, uh, now they have over 40, 50,000 members. Uh, it's especially grown in the last two years uh, with the introduction of the European Union's general data protection regulation uh, and the requirement that companies uh, assign privacy responsibilities to a data protection officer. So they've really been growing international. I'd say for the first 10 years, it was majority uh, U.S. Uh, based organization. I mean, it still is based in the U.S., but it was majority of members were, were U.S., uh, but they have really uh, uh, gone about and, and really taken charge of that international aspect uh, in the last few years. In fact, it was interesting. I've been down to their event in Australia uh, for the Australian uh, 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 summit that they have 
uh, the last two years. And uh, about a number of years ago, uh, the Australians were actually, they were a separate entity and they were just licensing the name of the IAPP. Uh, but this oh, last wow. year, uh, they reintegrated because the IAPP up here in New Hampshire, where they're based, didn't have the resources to 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 really focus on Australia, and they were really right. focused on growth in Europe. Um, and so, but uh, in the last year, they they reintegrated the uh, the organization down in Australia, shut down. Uh, they gave all their money to uh, some like research projects. Uh, and promotional projects uh, around privacy in Australia uh, and the IAPP, the International Association of Private Professionals, has taken over that uh, Australian operation uh, now. So, um, so yeah, it's a, a good organization. I, I was a faculty member at one point. Uh, I've uh, been actively involved for a number of years. I've spoken at, at many of their events. Uh, and in fact, that's how I ended up uh, getting on this podcast was, uh, uh, speaking with, uh, uh, uh Scott, uh, and, and we're going to be speaking at an event, uh, actually take that back. It's not an IEPP event, but, uh, we're going to be speaking together. Uh, just, uh, thought about it when we were talking about me speaking at a lot of events that could I do. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a good organization. Uh, they have a number of, a number of certifications, uh, uh, that, uh, are available, uh, that you can get, uh, to, to showcase your privacy chops. Uh, and, um, yeah, it, it will continue to grow, uh, I'm sure. Awesome. Thank you for diving into that. So that kind of brings me to, obviously you're an author kind of touched on in the beginning, but, um, why, why don't we talk a little bit about your first book that you wrote for them called strategic privacy by design. Let's kind of dive into that. Uh, I had uh, had been working in the area of privacy by design for a, a number of years and been doing uh, training workshops uh, for companies. It started out when I was at NCR, uh, and I would do internal workshops for them. And then I started uh, branching out and, and doing it for other companies, uh, you know, with uh, with clients that way. And one of the things uh, that I ran into a lot of times with my workshops is uh, I wanted to be able to give th something to participants to take away. Uh, I would give them a copy of my PowerPoint, uh, but most of my PowerPoint was just uh, slides and pictures, and there wasn't a lot of meat to it. So unless they were taking copious notes, uh, they would not uh, have gotten the information um, I've now switched over to a format where uh, they get the slides, uh, but they get a, a workbook where they can take notes in the workbook uh, oh, right neat. next to the picture of the slide. Uh, yeah. So that, that's been helpful in the last couple of, of sessions I've done. Uh, but uh, in wanting to give them kind of the, the real meat of the information uh, that I was giving in person, because it is a lot of information uh, for people, even even privacy professionals find that uh, my my workshops are are a lot of stuff that they had never heard of because I don't go through I don't do compliance by design. I'm not talking about the the legal or regulatory requirements that a company may have, uh, which you'll find a lot of a lot of privacy talks are, oh, well, this law says this and you have to do X, Y and Z. No, I really talk right. about privacy from a, a, a principle and ethical perspective and then help people understand what privacy means, help them identify uh, there's, a, there's a number of strategies and tactics they can use. Uh, 
talk about privacy risk uh, in a very uh, deterministic uh, way of, of, of identifying privacy risk. I use uh, something called FAIR, Factors Analysis and Information Risk, uh, kind of modified a little bit for, for privacy. Um, but anyway, so, so going back to my book, so I wanted something for people to take away so that they can refer to it and, 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 you know, do a deep dive after the actual training session, because it was just too much, you know, something I had been learning over years and years, uh, of diving into this. So it's just not something somebody could learn in a, in a day, even in a, a, a comprehensive workshop like that. So I started writing the book. And I had been in uh, talking to somebody at the IAPP. I, I really wanted to start doing my training sessions uh, like before or after an IAPP event to try to leverage the number of privacy professionals who are in a specific location. Uh, and they yeah. weren't really interested in in uh, in coordinating on that because they had their certification training and it was just a, a distraction. It's not their model to kind of partner up like that. Um, but I mentioned my book when I was on the phone with uh, uh, then uh, content director Sam Feifel, and he's like, oh, Privacy by Design? We need a book about that. When can you have it done? <laughs> uh, so that was that was January of 2018, right before the GDPR went into effect, uh, or maybe it was yep. like February or March that we were talking. And, um, and I said, oh, well, how about uh, you know, summer sometime. He's like, oh, that'll be great. We can launch it at their uh, privacy, security, and risk event that they have, that's their West Coast event. Uh, and so that's what we did. Uh, we, uh, we, we launched it then. Um, and then so awesome. I'll, I'll go ahead and mention one of the things I'm trying to take advantage of my uh, extra time here uh, in, in self-isolation um, is uh, I, I'm working on a second edition of that book. So this there is an go. ever, ever evolving topic, you know, that the book is now uh, two years old uh, and, and, you know, I'm not one for keeping things static. Uh, I learn not only learn new things uh, as, as time is going along, but I learn new ways of describing things. So one of the good uh, one of the good parts of doing an interactive workshop uh, that I did with companies and privacy professionals was I get feedback. I see where the they're struggling with concepts. Uh, and so I can use different examples, better examples. I can do a deeper dive. So, so part of that is, is, is kind of uh, adding some, some new stuff to it. Uh, and part of it is a reframing of some of the concepts uh, in the second edition, just so there's a, uh, a you know, better uh, ability for people to learn and take it away from that. Awesome. So is this going to be an actual separate book, different title, or is this going to be just like a a special edition second, kind of like add second on. edition second edition just just a new second edition although i would say probably 20 to 30 percent new content okay uh or revised content so it's, it's a good it's, it's not just like I, I didn't just go and you know change some uh you know typos and and yeah. fix some wording <laughs> grammatical things Put some pictures I mean, in there there's gonna be <laughs> enough that somebody who had picked it up before could use it, though I'm not necessarily, uh, you know, two years is a short time. I'm not trying to to, to resell them the, the wheel, but there is going to be enough in there uh, that I think, uh, you know, can be can be helpful to people. I, I, I do want to touch on, I meant to mention this a minute ago, but 
One of the things that, uh, uh, you know, was mentioned earlier about uh, being uh, a privacy unicorn, uh, one of the things that I've really been able to leverage uh, in helping me kind of create this privacy by design process is uh, that I used to go, uh, and I still do to the extent that we'll be able to anymore, is I, I used to go to a lot of uh, academic conferences. I would go to professional conferences like the IABB conferences, and I would go to legal conferences. So uh, Dan Solov's Privacy uh, uh, Law Scholars Conference. And so I would draw upon all these different elements. And unfortunately, many privacy professionals, they only go to the privacy professional conferences. And so they have this kind of very skewed or, or minimal view of privacy. Uh, and so that's why when I even when I have privacy professionals in my workshops, they're like, oh, I never thought of it this way or I never knew about this uh, because I'm drawing from uh, academic texts that are, that are technical or engineering based texts. I'm drawing from legal scholars that are kind of on the forefront of thinking about uh, the law and philosophy around uh, privacy uh, and obviously drawing from the privacy professional community as well to, to know what's kind of the current uh, state of affairs. Uh, so that, that's why it ends up being uh, so helpful and, and so different and interesting for people. That's, a, that's really that's really neat to hear that. And you can hear the passion behind it, too, from you. And I, I don't know if you really touched on this before, but my, my biggest question for you, well, not biggest question, but one of my questions for you is, you know, why privacy? Why did you... Why were you so interested in privacy? What what really drove you there um, after being in the uh, tech field? So it, it, it you mentioned passion. It has been a passion of mine for for quite a number of years. I will say that uh, not necessarily privacy, but even when I was in high school and and college and and younger, I was very much um, a, a civil liberty civil libertarian uh, type. Yeah. Um, you know, very much uh, about freedom and autonomy and, and uh, you know, individual uh, rights, right. um, which obviously privacy plays into in a huge respect. But I'll tell you what probably really got me uh, into the, the privacy aspect. Uh, and now, now this is in my book, but it's only briefly mentioned in the in the kind of uh, many thanks. But I had a roommate uh, early on uh, after right after college who was a uh, repossession agent and private investigator. And we wow. used to, he used to show me one, all the information he could get on me, like be using these early forms of uh, uh, data brokers, you know, he put in my yeah. driver's license number, social security number, you know, and here's, Oh, here's all the addresses you've lived at. Here's, you know, all this information. I mean, nothing, pales in comparison to what's available now right yeah uh, but still it, it was scary enough back then so we used to uh, for 25 years now i've had a private mailbox uh, i don't use my uh home or apartment address uh for anything uh, all my mail goes to a mailbox um you know that was one of the things that we both did I mean, and he, he would also show me all the ways that he would do skip tracing to try to find people. I mean, he had great stories of uh, like, uh, you know, they would have certain information like they had uh, a uh, some guy's pager. All they had was his pager number. So they paged him. Then he called back from his girlfriend's phone. This was kind of back in the days before cell phones were really right. big. 
And back then you could call the operator, give them a phone number and they would reverse do a reverse search and give you the address associated with that phone number. Oh, so wow. he would, he called back, they called the operator, got the, it was an apartment complex. He went to the apartment complex and repoed the guy's car. Um, <laughs> So we used to, we used to do all sorts of things. Like one of the things, so back in the day, when there were telephone books, you used to uh, have to. Uh, they would charge you if you wanted an unlisted number. It was like one or two dollars a month if you yeah. wanted your number unlisted. But you could put any name you wanted on the listing. So it didn't have to be the name of the account holder. So a number of us used Jerry Garcia. So you would look up in the in the Tampa phone directory and there'd be like 20 Jerry Garcias and like, you know, five, six, seven of them were me and my friends who all put Jerry <laughs> Garcia as our uh, uh, as the name because we didn't we didn't want to pay the two dollars to have an unlisted number. Yeah. <laughs> so we had all sorts of things. You know, we were early into putting uh, passwords on our utility accounts. Uh, because that would be another way he would call. He, you know, he, one of his skip tracing techniques. He would call a utility company. Hey, yeah, I need service at my, you know, address. Here's my name and and phone number. Uh, oh, you know, I want to check that you have the right address for me. Can you tell me what address you have on my account? And of course, this was back before you know people, you know, all uh, people yeah. were, uh, you know, companies were paranoid about getting this information out. Um, so they, that's how they would get addresses to go repo cars. Uh, so we, we did all sorts of things, you know, knowing. So that so that kind of really got me into privacy, uh, you know, knowing all these techniques and all the things that people could find out about you. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and so that was it. Was, so it was a personal passion of mine. I eventually ended up in information security, uh, but really kind of wanted to go more into privacy. And uh, that's that's kind of my path. Yeah, it seems like it worked out perfectly too, because now you have that, uh, you know, both sides of the coin. That um, yeah, and it, and it it's really good to have a lots of anecdotes as well, uh, especially. So I, I go through in my training, I go through uh, uh, this uh, taxonomy by D uh, Dan Solov of mm -hmm. uh, privacy uh, harms, uh, and I make the joke that. Every single one of them has happened to me, and I can give you anecdotes of all of these things <laughs> that, that I personal experience. And people like hearing that; they don't want to hear abstract concepts. Now, normally, no. I don't use that. Uh, uh, you know, I don't use uh, my own personal examples. I try to use something from the news. Uh, you know, that this is helpful again more than an abstract concept. But in a few, I do use uh, my own example. So one of them I'll give you here. To one of the uh, ones is uh, or privacy harm is appropriation. That is appropriating somebody's name or likeness. Uh, you normally think about this in terms of like celebrities. You think, you know, Elon Musk's picture being used to sell smart pills. You know, he didn't yeah. endorse that, not getting paid for that, but they're using his name and likeness. But it's not just celebrities. I did a reverse Google image search and found my image being used by a, an Asian dating website. Um, <laughs> there it was, it was promoting uh, Western millionaires. Uh, so, you know, cool, actually. Of, you know, and if you think about the, the, the TV show catfish, I mean, that's all about people appropriating other people's name and likeness, True, yeah. uh, and but, how easy but it even, is, but even, even social media, you know, when you hit a like button, uh, on a, on a website or something like that, and then your friends look at it uh, and they're told, Oh, 10 of your friends like this website or this product, uh, and it shows your name and picture. 
Uh, that's a form of appropriation. It's not a big deal. It's not Elon Musk being used to promote to thousands of people that he's trying to sell smart pills, uh, but it still is a form of appropriation. Uh, but like I said, on almost all of these, I can give examples uh, uh, where these have happened to me. Uh, just because I'm I'm hypersensitive to it, and I think you know, uh, growing up with my friend uh, who was the repo agent and PI, you know, I became hyper attuned to these types of issues. I mean, early on, uh, it was funny. I mean, you know, this was 20 years ago. You know, with grocery stores would be like, uh, you know, you go buy something. Oh, what's your uh, zip code? And most people didn't think anything of it. No. I always I always said, I mean years before it was uh, in vogue, uh, I, I would always say 90210. I mean, this tells you how old, uh, you know, this was back when the show was in, in play, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I would uh, I would say uh, 90210, and, and they'd look at me funny. Some of them would say, that's not really it. And I'd be like, what, are you calling me a liar? <laughs> so they would invariably put it in. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so this has been a, a, a long time, uh, a long in time works. in the works for me. Yeah. It sounds like it. You can hear it in your voice. You can hear it with the stories and I'm sure you have tons of interesting stories for sure. I wanted to kind of, I know we're getting kind of closer to the hour, but sure. I know, I know one of the topics you wanted to, to bring up and talk about, which I think is really beneficial to the listeners, which would be on the NIST privacy framework, uh, the F ethics in privacy. If you want to kind of touch on that a little bit as well, before we close out. Sure. So, uh, last year, uh, NIST started an initiative, uh, to develop a, a privacy framework. Uh, they had previously about five, six years ago, developed a cybersecurity framework. And they realized that that wasn't uh, enough to cover the, the rubric of everything that falls under privacy. So, so last year they, they did this uh, initiative. Uh, I was uh, as heavily involved as I could be uh, submitting commentary. I went to two of the three uh, in-person um, meetings that they had uh, around the development. Uh, and then luckily, uh, even before they had announced the final version in January uh, or version 1.0, even before they put out their preliminary draft of version 1.0, which came out in October, uh, I, I got a client uh, who was interested, uh, who brought me in to help align them to the uh, to the NIST privacy framework as it was being uh, developed. Um, wow. And so that was uh, that was a really uh, exciting and, and good opportunity. And one yeah. of the things that I really jumped on. Uh, was they mentioned it's kind of just an aside, but I took it hard. They mentioned in this privacy framework using a number of factors to determine how to implement the the framework. And uh, the factors that they they included were uh, the company's business objectives, uh, the company's privacy values, uh, their risk tolerance. Uh, and the available resources that the company has. Obviously, if you're a five-person firm, you can't set up a huge privacy program with, you know, 20 people and and do a whole lot of detail, you know, as opposed to a multinational that has a lot of lot of resources. Uh, and you may have different tolerances based on what you're trying to do in your in your business. But the one I really jumped on was the privacy values. It's like how do you how do you how do you figure out what your values are and and put that into uh, your framework? Unfortunately, what how most people are going to use the framework is as a checklist. There's 101 items. 
uh, maybe a hundred. Uh, but they go, it's like, are we doing one? Are we doing two? Are we doing three? Are we doing four? That's, and it specifically says in this question framework, don't use this as a checklist. The question should be is, how are you doing one? Is it appropriate given your business objectives, privacy values, risk tolerance, and resources? Right. How are you doing two? Is it appropriate given those four factors, et cetera, et cetera? You got, I, I've been using the analogy of a muffin pan. The framework is a muffin pan. Right. So which which muffin holes are you going to use are appropriate to you? What are you going to put them in? What ingredients do you put them in? Are you making cornbread? Are you making blueberry muffins? Are you making chocolate, you know, ch- you know, chocolate yeah. cake muffins? So there, there's all different and, and it may I'll be different by industry you. and certain yeah, maybe different by <laughs> industry or by company. So, so then the question is, well, how do you determine, are you making chocolate chip or lemon muffins or blueberry muffins or what are, what are you making? And so I, I looked at this, these privacy values as kind of a starting point. And I looked at five different uh, kind of uh, uh, ethical uh, models for privacy or, or uh, kind of models for what privacy is. The sole of taxonomy that I mentioned uh, Ryan Kalo's uh, objective subjective harms framework. Uh, Alan Weston, who was the father of information privacy and uh, wrote a book in the 60s called Privacy and Freedom. Uh, he has four states of privacy. Uh, Alan Prosser was a famous torts professor, uh, and he did a restatement of torts with four different uh, privacy torts. Uh, and then um, uh, Woody Hartzog recently published his book, Privacy Blueprint, and he identifies three pillars of privacy. Uh, that is uh, autonomy, um, trust, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm blanking on the third one uh, at the moment. Uh, but anyway, so I use these as kind of a, of a crosswalk uh, and said, OK, so what of these and, and how do we interpret this for 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 this company? Right. Um, and so one of them, so one of them ended up being uh, is uh, fair portrayal. So the idea is, and this comes from uh, Dan Solov's uh, distortion harm, where you're putting out false information about a person. Uh, and uh, Prosser, who is the privacy tort professor, uh, his uh, tort of uh, presenting somebody in a false light. So again, presenting somebody publicly uh, with uh, false information. Uh, and so. So what we came up with was fair portrayal. So the idea is uh, that you portray somebody fairly, uh, that you portray somebody, and I'll use three terms, which is uh, uh, accurately, uh, with um, uh, uh, in in a timely fashion. You're not portraying them as they were 20 years ago. Uh, so so accuracy, uh, timeliness. Uh, Darn, I'm, so I'm going, I'm going again on, it seems like I can only get two out of three things today. That's okay. Um, anyway, so a lot of people will uh, know this uh, as the OECD principle of, of data quality. Um, and, uh, and, but the difference between calling it data quality uh, and fair portrayal, data quality has this kind of uh, uh, very, a sterile view. Yes, every company wants good data quality, right? But it doesn't show how you want to treat people. But if you call it fair portrayal, you're talking about you're automatically 
embedding a value system into that. Yeah. Uh, That you want to portray people in a timely, accurate uh, way. Um, uh, So so anyway, then you can go through the NIST privacy framework and say – which of these subcategories in the framework, these hundred subcategories, help us achieve fair portrayal? And how do we do that? You know, how does, you know, putting a, a muffin in this particular muffin spot and what are the ingredients that we're going to put in to help us achieve fair portrayal? So that's how you would go about putting ethics into the privacy framework, uh, which is I like a lot better than kind of a lot of systems that, you know, that people are using that just building a privacy program. They're kind of on, on, uh, uh, you know, on, automation they're or, or they're just um uh, automated action they're not thinking yeah. it through of why they're doing it they're like oh we need a privacy notice yeah but why do you need a privacy notice because that's going to help you understand exactly. if you understand the purpose that that's going to help you understand what you have to put into it to, to to achieve your purpose not just going through the checklist and doing the motions uh, but actually doing it with a purpose in mind you know this one you know this one example of being achieving that fair portrayal it's a great example i mean that kind of correlates into just every company's decision to to implement privacy by design it's always on yeah, that agreed. why it's not just going agreed. through the motions it's yeah it's on that why Absolutely. Yeah, I think you, that's a great example. <laughs> I appreciate well, you thanks. doing that. Thanks. Uh, I, yeah, no, I, I, and I'm, I, I'm very thankful for the company that hired me to do this deep dive into the NIST because it really got me uh, thinking about that and, and having the time to go through it uh, and not just use it as a, as a checklist to, to check right. off the boxes. Are we doing X, but why are we doing it and what are we trying to achieve with it? Absolutely. Well, um, before I let you go, just want to see for the listeners, if uh, I know you, you're a speaker, you're an author, um, is there any places that they could follow you? Or uh, I know right now things aren't really, uh, you're not going to be speaking anywhere, uh, maybe maybe soon in the next coming months, but um, is there anywhere you're going to be next oh, that you know next of? Next week, I'll be in a, a thousand person auditorium. Of course, I'll be the only one there. No, just kidding. Okay. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm on Twitter at Privacy Maverick, uh, and, and I'll be speaking uh, with uh, uh, Scott coming up in, in from, from your company and coming up in a few weeks at the uh, Virtual Privacy and Security Forum. Awesome. Uh, it, it's still slated to be in person, but in October, I'm speaking at uh, Privacy Engineering Practice and Respect in San Jose. Uh, and of course they can always, uh, listeners can always connect with me on, on LinkedIn, uh, happy to, to chat with people, uh, and, uh, you know, help them out if they, they need some help. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was really in- insightful and, uh, very informational and, uh, hope, hope to have you back on in the future. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. All right, Jason, take care, man. Oh, thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Privacy Please. This podcast is brought to you by Spirion, protecting what matters most. Join us next week and every week as we delve into the intriguing world of security and privacy. You can email us at privacyplease at spirion.com and hit us up on our Twitter 
at privacypldpod. If you want to read more into these topics, check out our blogs on spirion.com. Again, I'm Cameron Ivey, an all-around decent guy. Until next time.